Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to be here with you guys today. As uh, Pastor Dave said, my name is Jeff Chaters, and uh, Calvary Baptist has been my home church for many years now. And uh, as he said, we've been going through a sermon series on the faithfulness of God. And so when Dave invited me to contribute a message to the series, I began to pray about, you know, what passage could add the most value to a sermon series such as this. And the narrative in Hosea chapter one was laid on my heart. So that is gonna be our passage for today. And we're gonna look at some of the context uh, surrounding Hosea one before we begin to appreciate how God uses this part of the Bible to invite us into a safe and exclusive relationship with him, which promises hope and healing for both us and our families, despite any of our shortcomings. And if you know anything about the book of Hosea, you'll know that it tells two parallel love stories about two different sets of spouses. It talks about the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer and God and his wife, the nation of Israel. Hosea and Gomer being a mere reflection of the relationship between God and Israel. And I'm sorry to say that while there is always an element of beauty to any true love story, there is also often pain. And our story today is no exception. But before we go any further, let's just take a moment to pray. So please bow your heads with me as we approach our Heavenly Father this morning. Dear Jesus, um, we are so grateful to be able to gather here in safety and to enjoy the company of one another and to just enjoy your word and draw closer to you and allow ourselves to, to hear from you. And, um, and we're just so thankful for all those things. And so we invite you into this place, God. We pray that you would be glorified and that your plans would prosper in our hearts and in this church and in the world, really, because we know that you're not done yet and you have got more that you want to do before the story is over. And we pray all of these things in your mighty name. Amen. So I'm going to read Hosea 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll revisit sections of the chapter as we go through the message. So it says this, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should forgive them at all. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, 
but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so what we see is that Hosea lived during turbulent years. Israel was relatively strong in terms of its military uh, capacities and its economic stability, but spiritual norms were changing, as was the geopolitical landscape, as world powers kind of jockeyed for positions of primacy over one another. And during these days, it wasn't always so clear where somebody could place their faith to guarantee their well-being going forward into the future. Hosea's life also occurred during the period of history when God's people had been splintered into two nations, the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south. And while this book, it does mention Judah, it is primarily addressed to the nation of Israel, which has been understood to have been the more consistently rebellious nation of the two. Out of Israel's 19 kings, only King Jehu is given a mixed review. He isn't explicitly remembered as being wicked. Whereas out of Judah's 20 kings, almost half of them are remembered by the Bible as having been righteous. And so it was into this context of spiritual darkness that Hosea is called to his ministry. That being to invite God's people to return to him before they were utterly swept away into exile under the Assyrian Empire. You know, which wasn't an unusual task for one of God's prophets. Get out there and invite people to come back to me. That was the job. But what set Hosea's ministry apart from other prophets was the method, how he was meant to reach out to his audience. Hosea was instructed by God to marry a promiscuous woman with the goal of beginning to demonstrate some of the spiritual realities of Israel's relationship with God as it says in verses two and three of our passage. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. It is notable that only this first child is listed by the Bible as being fathered by Gomer's husband, leading scholars to believe that Gomer's next two children may not have been fathered by Hosea. And scholars kind of debate the exact details and nature of Gomer's unfaithfulness, but it seems more than likely that it occurred both before and after her marriage to Hosea, which not only would have been painful for their family, but it also would have been somewhat discrediting 
to Hosea's ministry, whose job it was to invite God's people back from their own unfaithfulness, which was a difficult task to begin with, but even more so now. Because if ever a prophet was to be ignored, Hosea might have been one of the easiest to reject. The word hypocrite comes to mind. Who are you to speak to us about adultery, Hosea? I wonder if he ever felt frustrated by the circumstances of their lives, his complicated home life, and how nobody seemed to want to listen to his preaching. I mean, wasn't there an easier way for God to get his message out to people? And there might have been, but God never wastes anything, and he's always got a plan. It was Hosea's personal pain and experiences which undergirded his sermons that he preached to the people, and it gave his preaching a real shot at actually touching the hearts of the people who listened to the words that he had to say. He was truly preaching from the bottom of his heart whenever he invited God's people to return to him, because Gomer was married to Hosea, just like Israel was married to God, just like you and I are married to Christ, if we make the decision to become his disciples. You know, whether or not you've ever experienced the joy of Christ in your life, I can't say. That's something I can't tell you. But what I can say is this, is that all of us, no matter who we are or what our worldview is, we have all been drawn to love something other than Jesus. Sometimes it's easy for us to shake our heads and refocus on Christ, and sometimes it's not. But the good news is, is that God is not looking for perfect people. It's a relief. (laughs) But he is looking for people who want to hang on to Jesus. But how do we do it? How do we hang on to Jesus in a world that really would prefer it if we let go? And how do we hang on to Jesus when sometimes we even struggle against ourselves to desire to close our hands around our relationship with him? And to begin with, one of the ways that we can hang on to Jesus is by allowing him to be our source of security in this world. And that goes for all of our needs, from the most obvious ones like shelter and food to the less tangible but equally important ones such as uh, personal affirmation and uh, assurance, and it's an approach to life that really could have benefited somebody like King Jehu, whose life and mission went astray because of his decision to take matters into his own hands. As it says in verses four and five of our passage, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And so Hosea, he's told to name his first child Jezreel to draw attention to Israel's spiritual hypocrisy, 
one of the prime examples of which being King Jehu's massacre of the house of the wicked King Ahab at Jezreel. But the thing is, is that in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is selected by God to bring about a wave of justice in the land. And Jehu obeys his mandate from God. But the unfortunate thing was is that he then proceeded to exceed his mandate, likely out of a misguided attempt to secure his own rule ironically becoming the very sort of ruler that he was sent out to judge. Had King Jehu trusted in God to promote justice and ensure his security, much bloodshed would have been avoided and his dynasty likely would have lasted longer than four generations. So for us, whenever we're confronted with circumstances that make us feel like it's not gonna be okay. We can also be tempted to begin to take matters into our own hands and work to create a sense of security that guarantees our well-being on our own terms. But we can hang on to Jesus by allowing him to be enough for us trusting that God is more than aware of every single circumstance in each of our lives and the world at large. And not only does he see the entire picture, but he is the only one that understands it properly. It can be difficult, but it is worth it. Because when God is our source of security in the world, grace instead of violence can be what characterizes our lives, which leaves us free to be the people that we were always meant to be, zealous restorers of life. We were meant to be people who lead people to Jesus. In verse six, our text carries on. It says, Gomer conceived again, and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Now when we read that God would no longer show love to Israel, it can seem kind of mean and callous. He doesn't seem like the kind and tender-hearted God that we have been trained to anticipate. But one of the things that we have to remember when we're reading the Bible is that we are reading a translation and there's not always a one-to-one exact translation in terms of the meaning of words and phrases. Therefore, an understanding of the phrase, God would no longer show love to Israel, more in line with what we rightly understand his character to be should come across as that because of Israel's persistent rejection of God, the nation had placed itself in a position where it could no longer properly be a recipient of God's love and its benefits, and also would therefore naturally inherit the negative consequences of their ongoing choices. It is as if God's grace is a kitchen faucet. 
and our souls are empty glasses waiting to be filled. They'll overflow with the waters of grace in no time flat on one condition. They must be placed beneath the faucet's running waters. The Israelites' hearts and land had become dry and thirsty because they refused to place themselves beneath the lordship of Christ alone. And they attempted to worship the Canaanite uh, nature god known as Baal along with Yahweh, the god of Israel. And Baal was tempting to worship for a number of reasons. Firstly, Baal was tempting to worship because of his supposed influence over the realms of nature and reproductivity and weather and all these things. And so for a society whose paycheck relied entirely on the size and the quality of the harvest produced each and every year, it's only natural to see how Baal might over time begin to feel like somebody that you would be tempted to befriend. You can see how that temptation would creep in because if the crops fail, you're broke and you've got nothing to eat. But if you've got a good harvest, then you're rich. It's a pretty big difference between the two outcomes. And so it was tempting. Secondly, Baal was tempting to worship due to how his followers were meant to go about worshiping him. One of the most obvious examples being that one of the ways that people were meant to stir up his favor on their lives was by having sexual intercourse with the cult shrine prostitutes. And it was said that this act was essential to um, moving Baal's favor, right? And so obviously this habit would have had a physical appeal to it, but it was also easier. It was easier than the self-control related with following God. And so it was tempting. Thirdly, Baal worship was tempting because other people in the community were doing it. And social forces, they have an immense influence over what we believe and perceive to be right and true and best. I mean, just think about crossing the street. When you're crossing the street, if you're the first person there and you decide to wait for the signal to cross, everyone who comes after you is gonna be much more likely to also follow your example because a social precedent of behavior has been set. In this situation, this is how we behave. But if someone, for whatever reason, decides to break away from the pack and they say, you know what, I'm crossing. I don't care what anybody else is doing. I don't, I'm not gonna wait for the signal, I'm just gonna go. If they do that, then it increases the odds that other people are also gonna follow their example. And if enough people follow that person who leaves the pack, eventually there is an opposite force that is exerted on anyone left on the curb and it actually becomes embarrassing to wait for the signal to cross, even if you were the first one there and you were the one who set the example to begin with. So you might be tempted to cross just to avoid embarrassment. And so when it comes to preferred views on a host of subjects, 
sometimes we can be more concerned about what is gonna guarantee our safety over what is actually right and true and best. Israel, at this time, was attempting to have their cake and eat it too. They didn't mind speaking about God. They didn't mind celebrating festivals. They didn't mind making offerings to God. They didn't even mind calling out to God whenever they were in trouble. But in addition to all of those things, they also worshiped Baal, leading a double life of sorts. Now, it comes as no surprise that sin has an undoing effect on our lives. Just like a pair of shoes and shoelaces, if you pull the right shoelace, the whole thing comes undone. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, it does not have to be the final word or the defining factor in our lives. Because when we turn to seek God and seek his forgiveness and his advice on you know, what he would have us do, he can always regenerate us and lead us in the right direction as he has done innumerable times. Therefore, sin, while deadly and destructive, is not even the biggest threat um, of our relationship with God, but instead apathy and an unwillingness to let God in is actually what proved to make exile absolutely inevitable for the nation of Israel. They saw no problem in worshiping Baal. Many of the people, even believing it was just another name for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's how confused they were. The idea that Jesus forgives our sins is actually a pretty easy one to accept because it's either perceived as a timely assist, thank you, Lord, I needed that, or else it is perceived as a kind but ultimately unnecessary gesture, right? Nice, but basically inconsequential. Whether or not you believe that you need Jesus' forgiveness, it is still only a byproduct of a more central and crucial question that each of us must answer and may only answer for ourselves. The question being this, who is in control of your life? Is it you? Is it Jesus? Or is it somebody else? The difficult thing about this question it is, is that it's also a question in motion. It gets asked of us repeatedly for the duration of our lives. And so another way that we can hang on to Jesus is by submitting control of our lives to him, giving him control, as did the nation of Judah throughout many of their early years as a nation apart from Israel, which explains God's willingness to act on their behalf. As we read in verse seven, yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And when we look back at history, 
we find that it's true. The nation of Judah, they last 135 years longer than Israel, entirely due to their commitment to their connection with God and the position they chose to take beneath the running waters of his gracious lordship. In times when they should have been swept away in a heartbeat, God saved them and delivered them from their enemies. Our text goes on in verses eight and nine. It says, after she had weaned lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. You know, it seems to be the case that we don't use much harsh language in church. There are certain words and phrases which are considered rude or inappropriate, and so they tend to be avoided. And to be sure, in the New Testament, there are lots of uh, verses where Paul talks about the intentional use of upright speech so as to build up one another. Our words are meant to strengthen um, our brothers and sisters' hearts and knees. But as far as harsh language goes, could anyone hypothetically think of something more offensive to say to someone than not my people? Imagine with me two people having a disagreement and their comments are going back and forth and they're escalating up and up and up until one of them, they finally lose their patience and they say, well, you know what? You're not my person. Well, maybe that's a little bit rude to say. Uh, It's certainly not a nice thing to say, but it doesn't feel like the capstone criticism that might follow in a situation like that. And so the phrase, uh, not my people, can almost glance off of us as being relatively inconsequential or not that serious. But when we read those words slowly with eyes of faith, we reevaluate this situation as a level 10 red alert crisis, foundational to the core of a person's identity. Because rather than representing a struggle or a strife in somebody's relationship with their creator, instead, in this scenario, something else has been the defining has become the defining characteristic of somebody's lives which is a dangerous thing because it leaves us exposed it leaves us vulnerable because life has been known to throw curveballs but if Christ is the defining feature of our lives then no matter what happens ultimately we are safe. It does not mean that there's no such thing as tragedy or disaster. It just means that those things don't have to be the end of the story. And our obedience to God becomes a much more difficult thing to sway because what is most important, namely our relationship with Jesus is already secure. One thing to be absolutely clear on is that when God uses the phrase, not my people, it doesn't actually represent an immature outburst of anger on his part. 
Rather, it should be seen simply as a sober assessment of the current state of affairs. In other words, it's just the way things were. But as quickly as everything seems to deteriorate between God and his people, does the Lord reignite a relationship with them using the very same phrases and language he used in his original conversations with Father Abraham when he first launched his mission to save the entire universe. Listen to what God said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. He said this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of descendants. But then in verse 10 of our passage, listen to what it says. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And so the resemblance in these two verses is unmistakable. Despite everything that has happened. God is going back to the beginning to restart a brand new relationship with his people. It has all the makings of a remarriage of sorts, really, where what was once shattered is reforged into something new and something that is going to last. Even though the nation of Israel had chosen to live life apart from depending on God. In an incredible showing of mercy and grace, God's response is to somehow bend the story so that they who rejected him will once again be counted as the children of God. And once again, regaining the safety and security of defining themselves by that relationship, standing behind his strength and beneath his mercy. You know, my uh, cousin Rachel tells me that uh, when Disney was creating the movie Tangled, which tells the story of the princess Rapunzel, they wanted to base the love interest character Flynn Rider on what most women in general perceive to be an attractive man. And so what they did was interesting. They, yeah, there he is. They hired a, a panel of women to come together and to put their heads together and you know, compile amongst themselves what he would look like and, and that sort of thing. And the final product of their contributions became the character we now know today as Flynn Rider. And when you look at him, you can tell that he is meant to be a good-looking character. However, good looks alone are not enough to convince Rapunzel that she is interested in Flynn. And it's only after she has seen that there's a depth of substance to his character that she begins to conceive that maybe there could be more than just friendship between the two of them. I think it would be interesting 
if we all got together and put our heads together to compile a list of the most desired traits in a spouse? And what would we come up with? It would be interesting to see because we all imagine the ideal spouse in slightly different ways. You know, maybe you imagine somebody who's bold and adventurous or else maybe you imagine someone who's more quiet and reflective. Who knows, right? But I think that it is safe to say that whatever we imagine, we imagine somebody who is going to stick by us through thick and thin until the end. People rightly desire to marry somebody who will be exclusively committed to them throughout the duration of their entire lives. Faithfulness being the single most crucial component of any marriage. It is what makes the boat float, so to speak. And without it, things fall apart. You know, the first day of Jezreel wasn't that great. It was marked by fear, insecurity, violence, and bloodshed. Baalism was temporarily wiped out during King Jehu's reign, but after his influence had passed, they worshipped Baal again. It did not take long, and they ultimately refused to repent, even after hearing Hosea's preaching, until the Assyrians, they carried them off into exile. And it makes you wonder what the point of it all was. Hosea's complicated life, the preaching, the marriage to Gomer, all of the children and their prophetic names. If Hosea had been obedient to God, why was exile still the outcome? Has Hosea failed? Didn't God have the power to change people's hearts. Where was he now? I thought God was faithful. But listen to these encouraging words in the last verse of our passage today. It says, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so this one leader the verse mentions is Christ, who is coming back to reunite his people, wherever they may be over the whole earth. Free us from slavery to sin for good and usher in a kingdom of real justice. And so as crazy as our world can feel, there is a true day of Jezreel coming, where evil in all its forms are going to be done away with, when what is good will be restored and established firmly, and life will be governed justly underneath Jesus' rule. It is this hope of a true day of Jezreel that provides purpose and meaning to our lives and our ministries 
especially when we feel as if our efforts for the kingdom of God have been in vain. A common experience among those who wrestle with matters that are largely invisible. But however much we may struggle in this time, because of what Jesus did on the cross and how he rose from the grave, evil has already been doomed to its final defeat. It's a done deal. We don't know every detail about how things are going to transpire from now until then, but we do know that when we place ourselves beneath the running waters of his gracious lordship, there is going to be a day when all we can see is God's goodness and his grace. But in the meantime, Jesus is our perfect spouse who will never leave us or forsake us. And because of his grace, we remain his stunning bride. That has not changed. There have always been forces that have wanted us to let go of our relationship with Jesus that would love it if it were just a thing of the past. But however valuable or invaluable our relationship with Jesus may seem to us in a given moment, Hosea's story reminds us that our true home is with our true spouse, Jesus, who has always been and forevermore will be the very safest place for us and our families as we walk into the future together. We need to remember that Jesus is still on the throne and he's still coming back. Maybe tomorrow, maybe in a thousand years, but he is coming back. So don't let go. Cling to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I just thank you so much for our relationship with you. Uh, We love you very much. And whatever has happened in the past, Jesus, we leave it there in the past. But we want to walk with you into the future. And your grace is enough for us. And we have it. We are already prepared to tackle today and tomorrow and beyond. Lord, show us how we can love our neighbors, how we can come together. And I pray that obstacles would not come between us. If there are any obstacles, I pray that we would just jump over them with you, Jesus. That we would move past them. That they would not become excuses to love one another, to not love one another with the love of Christ. God, would you transform us? Please show us if there's anything that is holding us back. Any bitterness or resentment. Anything, God. Show it to us that we might get rid of it. Give it to you. And be free from it for good. We love you very much, Jesus, and we're just excited to see what you're going to do in the future. I pray that fear would not characterize this church or our families or our hearts, but instead I I pray that courage would characterize this church and would characterize each and every one of us. May we be known for our bravery and our love for you. And I pray this in your name, Jesus.
Amen.